Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to wrap up First Philippians 1 today, reading verses 27 through 30. I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible, not because I think it is a better translation than the English Standard Version. It is a great translation, and lots of people are using it in our day. I'm reading from it this morning because... The Bible that I have used for 10 plus years is sitting comfortably on my daughter's kitchen table in Macon, Georgia. I discovered it last night when I got home, and uh, it's sitting there along with my laptop that contains all my teaching notes for Guido Bible College, where I'm teaching. Haley loves that it's sitting there because Jared, her husband, is like Ann. They, go, they make trips, and they never leave anything. The truth is, I leave stuff wherever I go. That's just what I've done. And and Haley, when she sees it, she just looks at Jared and said, See, me and my dad, we are like. So uh, that's why I'm using the Christian Standard Bible, because when I got ready last night to finish up, put the finishing touches on this morning, I couldn't find my Bible. <laughs> I realized where it was. Let's stand to honor God in the reading of his word, if you can and are able. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you're standing firm in one spirit in one accord, contending together, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opposition. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is from God, for it has been granted you. It's been given to you as a gift of God's grace on Christ's behalf. Not only that you believe in him, but also that you suffer for him. Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, Would you show us today by your Holy Spirit through your word where our citizenship as believers really is? Because if you were to show that to us in a way that every believer in this room sees it, it would change forever the way we live our lives in this world because it would change forever the way we see ourselves in this world. This is not our home. We are strangers here. This world is strange to us. It's foreign to us. We're aliens here. We're from another place. And we're here for a brief span for one purpose. To live our lives for the praise of your name among your people, proclaiming the gospel to the world So give us eyes to see, we pray, and ears to hear, 
and minds to comprehend and lives that will be changed that would make us joyful citizens as long as we're here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You don't have to read much of what the Apostle Paul writes to recognize that his life in this world was not easy. Paul had a hard life in this world, and yet he was absolutely filled with joy and peace. He was passionate about the purposes of God in his life, and he pursued those purposes with great joy because he knew that he only had a short time in this world, and in this world he had one overarching purpose. He knew that his citizenship is not here. He didn't belong to this world, and he was in this world as a child of God, an ambassador of the gospel. Uh, Turn over to chapter 3 in Philippians, verse 20, and listen to how he writes about his understanding of his place in the world and the place of all who are children of God in the world. Verse 20, at the end of chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends." Or turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, or turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes again about our true citizenship as the children of God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, you are then no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, a reference to the Bible. The foundation for our lives as Christians is the word of God. We want to hear the word of God, read it, study it, learn it, live it. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, Verse 21, in whom the whole building being being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Just one other place. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. This is a passage that I've spent a lot of time in recent weeks just meditating on because this passage overwhelms me with how God sees us as his children. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, now listen, not on earthly things. Why? 
Verse 3. For you died. A believer is dead to everything that is in this world. We have died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul wants us to enjoy citizenship in this world, living in this world that is filled with joy. Now tell me the truth. Do you see or do you meet Christians in your daily encounters that are exuding joy? What about you? What about me? Uh, Maybe we have the wrong focus. Maybe we need to clarify through God's word and by his spirit who we are and why we are here. There's an old southern gospel song that has in it the line, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. I've got a home in glory land way beyond the blue. So let's look at this section this morning that ends chapter 1 because it's all about joyful citizenship. It is of massive importance in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. These verses, verses 27 through 30, actually are the introduction to the main section of the letter. It has before us the first imperative that is in the letter And verses 27 through 30, in the original language, it's just one sentence. Paul wants us to get this in order to get the rest of the section. And the rest of the section goes all the way to the 18th verse of the second chapter. Now, what Paul says here in verses 27 through 30 can be put into one statement And the one statement is in the outline. What I want to do this morning is read this statement and then unpack the main words in the statement because they're the main words in this passage. Here's the statement. Live out your identity. That's an imperative for believers. Paul is writing to Christians in the church in Philippi. Live out your identity. That is the source and substance of your unity Because you have a clear and central activity that will bring you hostility, but it will produce tranquility. we got to know our identity. It's our identity in the church that produces unity. It is our unity that brings us together into the one central activity that God has given us. And if we as a church know who we are and we are together in pursuing who we are in terms of what we're to do, I can guarantee you this, it will produce hostility. It will make enemies. But it will also bring to Christians the deepest, most abiding and overflowing peace and joy that you will ever know in your life. It will happen in the midst of pain, but there will be peace. It will come with conflict, but it will bring contentment. So let's look at the source of our identity. Who does Paul say we are? Translated in the Christian Standard Bible by three words, just one thing. There is just one word, 
And it is the word for only. It means above all else, that which is of first importance. Nothing matters more than this. Only. One thing. And it can't have attached to it any what ifs and buts. Now, I wonder how many in this room are like me. I want to be completely sold out to Jesus. That's my heart and soul. But often when I say that, there is, I want to be completely sold out to Jesus, but you got any of that in your life? I want Jesus to be the absolute Lord of my life. I want to live in obedience to the word of God. But what if? There are no buts. There are no what ifs. Jesus calls us under his lordship to live under the absolute authority of his word only. This is the character of our identity. What is the course of our identity as Paul lays it out here? Just one thing, only this as citizens of heaven. That too is four English words that translate one Greek word. And that one Greek word makes clear that when you become a child of God, you cross over. You become a citizen of another world. Now, the word itself means how we act in the city. In the Greek and Roman world, the primary source of life, economically, socially, and politically, was found in the city. So this word has in it the word city, and it means how we live in the city. The city of this world. When you become a believer, your residence changes forever. You're no longer a resident in the city of this world. You're an alien here. This is not your home. You're a stranger here. This is not where you look for meaning and purpose because it's not found here. Never has been, never will be. God, by his grace, has transported you so that according to the Bible, God through Christ has already seated you in heavenly, in the heavenlies. You have a home with God forever by God's grace. You belong no longer to this world. You belong to his world, not in this kingdom, but in his kingdom. This is our identity. This is the course of our identity. This is who we are as the people of God. And then Paul tells us what is the content of our identity. Only this, this one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you know, friend, that none of us is born worthy of God? None of us is born so that we're the children of God. None of us are 
born into the family of God. We're born in hostility toward God, pursuing our own agenda, wanting our own way. That's who we are. And God has come in Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel, and God has brought us the good news for our bad news that as we are, we're born on a path that has brought us under the judgment of God and will take us in the end to hell. But God intervenes through his Son writes it in red for us, his great love and mercy toward us, comes to change us through the gospel. Can I remind you what the gospel is? The gospel is not you just need to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. That's a half truth. That is true. The gospel is that you are born into this world under the demands of God's law that you cannot meet. And God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his one and only son into the world, to meet that demand of the law for you. Jesus became the only human ever who, who ever lived to be acceptable to God because he met God's standard. None of us can, none of us have, none of us will. So Jesus became the only person who ever lived on this earth who could offer himself to God and say to God, I will be the sacrifice offered up to you that will end all sacrifices. No more blood will ever have to be spilt in the universe because I will stretch out on the cross and I will shed my blood to satisfy your justice and I will take the place of sinners. I will take their place. And he did. That's the gospel. When you believe the gospel, God saves you by his grace. And the result of the gospel at work in your life is that you are changed. Nobody believes the gospel, really believes the gospel, and is left unchanged. We become new creations in Christ because of the power of the gospel, and then we commit ourselves to live our lives among the people of God. We find a church, we get in a church, we love that church, we're loyal to that church, as long as that church is faithful to the truth of God. Because we've been changed by the gospel. We're citizens of heaven And our desire is to live our lives so that we are worthy of that gospel. We show that we've been changed. And we show it whether somebody's looking or not. Paul says, then whether I come and see you or am absent. Whether I come and see you or whether I am absent. We all have this tendency To be more like Jesus when Jesus' people are looking, right? (laughs) It's easy to be a Christian on Sunday morning when we're gathered in church. But you know the real test, you know this, is when nobody's looking. Uh, The real test, man, married man, is how you treat your your wife at home. Wife? The real test is how you relate to your husband at home. I've been going through one of those seasons where my life has been busier than I like it to be. Now, I brought all this on myself because I I agreed to 
teach at Guido Bible College, a course I'd never taught before, and I'm having to write every teaching session every week. One of my great joys, you know, is going on mission trips, so I'm going leaving. Jerry and I are leaving next Monday on Valentine's Day of all days to go to Liberia. Got six teaching sessions there plus other things, so I've just been busy. You know who gets the brunt of my business? Not you, but Ann. She's asked me questions at home lately, and she just asked a simple question. I go, what? Like she's exploded some bomb in my soul. Living worthy of the gospel is revealed more in how I respond to her in those moments than how I preach and teach from this pulpit, I promise you. And it's true for you. When nobody's looking, how are you doing? When nobody is examining your life, when you've got your phone out and you know that you can go places that nobody will know but God, how are you doing? A believer knows that his or her identity is as a citizen of heaven and we want to live lives with great gratitude for the loving grace and mercy of God. We want to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. When you have people like that in a church that are hungry for God, thirsty for God, longing for God, wanting to know God through his word, wanting to obey God, it becomes the foundation for unity. Paul is writing here to a local church. He uses second person plural pronouns. The citizens of heaven live your life. That's not a statement to an individual. It's plural. Then whether I come and see you, that's plural. I will hear about you. That's plural. There is no Christian that lives in isolation from other Christians. That's not possible. There are rare situations where that may not happen, where that may happen, but it's very rare. One in millions. But the child of God is compelled to come together with the people of God, be a part of a church. Paul is writing to a church here. Paul says, whether I'm there with you or I'm absent, I will hear. End of verse 27, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you're in one accord, that means literally it's one soul, that you are contending or striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul uses two images here. One he draws from the military. The other he draws from athletics. Paul says that whether I'm with you or I'm away, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. This is not, this is not the spirit of the people bound together. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is the only person in the universe that can produce unity among the people of God. So you see a church that is not experiencing unity, and you think, well, the problem is people in the church that don't get along. The problem is the absence of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. 
Because the Holy Spirit produces unity among like-minded people who are in the church to serve God and to glorify God and to exalt Jesus and be faithful to him. Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm because you have an enemy and the enemy is not each other. The enemy is Satan and his demonic powers that is assaulting the people of God more in our day than I have ever seen. So we have to stand together, but we not only have to stand together, we have to strive together. We have to contend together. That's an athletic term. It was used of athletes in that period of time in which Paul was writing, participating in the games that became the precursors for the Olympic Games. He's talking here about team sports, where you've got people on a team And they are encouraging each other. They're supporting each other. They are arm to arm. They're hand to hand. That's what the church is. We come alongside each other. We hear that somebody in the church that we know and love is struggling with sin. We don't go tell somebody else that person's struggling with sin. We go to them and encourage them and love them and pray for them and hug them and let them know that we are sinners too and we are working together alongside each other. We don't shoot our wounded Now, do we? We limp along together. We hurt together. We face situations together because we know who we are. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and this kingdom of heaven needs us to be faithful witnesses. So we're standing firm in one spirit with one passion. We are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we have opposition. Paul says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them. One writer says it is of extreme importance for Christians to live together in community and to work together in harmony to resist our common enemy with common intentionality and intensity. Now, you know, the Bible is clear, and and I wished it wasn't this clear. But most churches face enemies most often that don't come from outside the church. Most enemies against the church, the cause of the gospel, come from within the church. That's why a church having godly men in leadership who will protect the doctrine of the church and protect the character and the conduct of the church is so important. Because there are always wolves that are waiting to devour the sheep and men must be compassionate who lead and courageous because there is there is hostility that comes from within that seeks to bring corruption cancerous corruption to the church but there's always 
there's always hostility. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 and listen to what Jesus says, warning his disciples as he is teaching them and training them for what is going to happen in the world after he is gone. Those that come against the church, those that seek to attack the witness of the church. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, Therefore don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetop. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent, but even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. This is talking about how we live in the world. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. I believe there are still people whose faithfulness to Jesus and his call upon their lives will separate them from their families. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. To be a child of God is to live in the world in commitment to Jesus, and we will have enemies. Let me tell you who our worst enemies are. It's people that we go to school with. It's people that we socialize with. It's people that we work with who may even profess to be Christians, but they're not living it. And they want you to be like them. And you have to have the grace of God and the courage to stand up in the midst of that and to give a full-orbed, full-throated, faithful witness to Jesus. That's why you're in that context. God put you there. Not so you accommodate to them so they like you because you're like them. No, he put you there so you will open your mouth and declare the truth of the gospel. We must know who we are. We must live out who we are in our relationships to one another in the church. We must live before the world knowing that we are gospel witnesses, ambassadors for the gospel, and we will encounter opposition. But we must know that there is great peace. 
Paul says, don't be frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction. They are under the judgment of God, and if they don't repent, they will go to hell. You don't want them to go to hell. That's why you open up your mouth in spite of their criticism and critique and castigation and isolating you and treating you as if you were some kind of goody-two-shoes Bible thumper. It's a sign of their destruction, but your salvation, and this is from God. Verse 29, because it has been granted you, this is the word for grace. One of God's great grace gifts to you in Christ is that God empowers you to believe in him. Are you with me in verse 29? For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to what? Do you like that verse? Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul presents us here at the end of this introduction to the main section of Philippians with two roads that always converge in the Christian's life, always. There are no exceptions. The child of God desires to be fully faithful to Jesus. We give ourselves to him. We want to love him and serve him and honor him. That's a gift of God to us. But in order to grow us and mature us and change us and develop us, God sends us into the land of suffering. Nothing makes us more like Jesus than when we're in the place of suffering. When we're facing pain and problems and situations that are beyond our ability to handle Karl Barth, who was by no means a conservative theologian, wrote these words, the grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed only by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him. It was John Calvin who wrote these words, and I quote, Oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, What progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness? And yet, what is more certain than that it is the highest honor of divine grace that we suffer for his name either reproach or imprisonment perhaps for the gospel or miseries in this world or tortures or even death for the cause of Christ with which God ordains us with his imprint that we are his. But this is what he writes. The most of us will say to such suffering that we would rather We would rather that be gone in its entirety 
If that suffering means embracing the cross, if that suffering means living the way of the cross, most of us would rather reject that way than to live that way. End quote. But there is no other way because it's only the way of the cross that leads home. Jesus said it, didn't he? In this world, what are you going to have? What's guaranteed? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You know, I think that too many Christians in our day have settled down here. And what we're really after is the good life. I really do believe that. That's what we want. And when it doesn't come, we are frustrated in our Christian commitment because we've lost complete sight of who a Christian is and how a Christian lives. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I've got a home in glory land, way beyond the blue. I do. Do you? Father, how would we be able to deal with disease Dilemmas in life, difficulties we face, dangers we encounter. How? Unless we know that there is nothing here that lasts. We are citizens of another world, and we live joyfully here, however long we are to live here. We live joyfully in obedience to you, bearing witness to the gospel, knowing that one day there's going to come that call from heaven. Come home, my child. Come home. So for now... We simply want to put our hands in the nail-scarred hand to be everything you call us to be, to do everything you call us to do until, until we get home. And, oh, God, how we even this day look forward to the glory and majesty of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.